It's like it's like being on the Tuscan coast, isn't it? You know, I was about to give you a ration of nonsense because you were not going to give me Ariana Grande again. <laughs> you go and do something like this and completely redeem yourself, my friend. <laughs> I had to do I had to do something after I stole your fedora. You know, like you totally just went Ariana Grande, acoustic, you know, Italian style guitar cover of "Thank You Next" to open the show. <laughs> so glad that you. Uh, I'm so glad and or surprised that you knew exactly what that was. Yeah, that that's a cover by a, a guitarist by the name of um, Andrew Foy, um, and I found it this morning, and I was like, oh yeah, this is it. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. You you are not surprised at all. But I knew exactly what that was right away. Stop. <laughs> and I see once again you were drinking rosé. Uh, yeah, of course I am. Are um, you in, are you in Tuscany right now? Because it looks like it. I, I you know, uh, I flew there this morning. Uh, it was a lovely uh, hour flight in my edge to get here. I uh, know. Uh, I look like I'm in this bucolic setting, right? Um, I'm actually at the office. Uh, just in a spot where it looks like I'm in a bucolic setting. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's what we had to do. But uh, in my glass, I'm in Tuscany, yes. And I am in, and I am in Rosé. Uh, small fact, not, not everyone might, might know this. Uh, the second Saturday in June, which is tomorrow, uh, is National Rosé Day. And I know it's not Saturday, but uh, I'm going to observe it today because I want to. So... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I am, um, yeah, I'm in in Belmont, which you know can feel like Tuscany. Actually, doesn't feel like Tuscany at all. Um, but I am in my glass in Tuscany in a little village called Montepulciano. Uh, we'll talk about later. It's nothing to do with the with the grape. Um, and we are in Tuscany today. And welcome to Bottom of the Bottle. Um, the uh, the cool dude out there with the with the glasses, sans fedora. Sorry once again about that. It won't happen again. Uh, is Adam Vitaldo, the professor, uh, the history professor. I'm Andy Gonzalez, um, and I like rocks and soil. And um, you know we are in Tuscany, but we are not in Tuscany that we think of. Um, Adam is on the coast. I am in the interior, in the, the southeastern part, and we are nowhere near Chianti. Um, you know, and I think we both thought it was important to to go into Tuscany um, after our conversation with Chiro from Campania, uh, but we didn't really want to focus in on the generic, not that Chianti is generic, but to do something that was um, a little different and tell some broader stories of Tuscany as a region, because it's an old, old history, you know. It's ancient. There's so much going on there. And, and look, Chianti's a special wine. It's an important wine. It's one of the most important wines in the world. But <clears throat> that's going to be its own show, too. Like, we can't, we're doing a disservice to both the rest of Tuscany and Chianti itself if we try to combine that into one, you know, one 45 minute to an hour session. It's just not, it's just not fair. In uh, two, like, Italy's really hard. There's a lot of stuff to talk about in, in Italy, just beyond the history and the, and the indigenous grape varietals and, and, and whatnot. So if we want to give it the same love we gave France, we kind of have to break it up. I think there was no other way to do it. Oh, absolutely. And also, it lets me drink rosé. So I'm, I'm 100%. <laughs> yeah, so we, we were in Tuscany and, um, you know, 
I know if I were to say this to someone from Sicily or if I said it to Chiro, or, but um, they, would, they would punch me in the face. But uh, you know, Tuscany in many ways does embody um, Italy or at least our perception of, of Italy, um, in particular with the wine industry. Um, you know, it has an old ancient history all the way back to the Etruscans, which is where Tuscany comes from. And it was a tribe of people that lived in this area um, and they grew grapes thousands of years ago. Um, but, you know, the whole concept of how Italian wine is made today, and, and I just want to um, backpedal a little bit or side, side pedal a little bit on Psalm, Psalm Society, you know, and we talked about this last, uh, last time with Chiro, that people love this idea of like the old school ancient wines, the traditional wines. Well, how far back do we want to go? Because when the Etruscans were making wine, it was nothing like we would have today. We would not be able to drink it. Um, they did produce wine, but they would actually wrap their um, grapevines around fruit trees, around their olive trees, uh, because they wanted to consolidate as much land as possible to grow. And that was actually called um, matariato, which was a derogatory term that they would use for husbands that were basically, um, uh, what's the best way to say this? Um, they were kind of like puppies to their wives that would follow them everywhere. Um, and that's how the Etruscans would actually vinify wines. And it wasn't really until the Romans came and conquered this area. You know, um, there's a lot to be said about conquerors <laughs> and, uh, and the negative side. One thing about the Romans, um, they were less, I think, in, interested in making people Roman and they were mercantile. Um, and they brought a lot of, um, uh, I mean, look at the aqueducts throughout France, throughout Germany. Um, you know, they brought a lot of infrastructure into wherever they went and they brought winemaking into this kind of market sensibility. Um, they still made wine in a real funky way where it was done on, with amphora. They would add honey, they would add raisins, um, they would bury it in the, in the water, you know, uh, which is not how we like wine today. I mean, different <laughs> flavor profiles, right? Um, you know, but they really brought the winemaking structure throughout Italy and really France um, into something that is a little more reminiscent of what we have today, you know. Um, and that all changed ultimately in the Middle Ages, because in the Middle Ages you had uh, more of a, a feudal rule um, where there was sharecropping. It was basically a 50-50 split between, you know, the growers or, or the landowner and the growers and so they were just growing everything together you know, it was a lot of mixed farming and it was not about quantity or quality at all I mean, it was really make as much money as you can pay them back who cares what it tastes like i'm glad we don't live in those times today the wines are probably a little better now i might be safe to say <laughs> you know, uh, it, you know, uh, we might have to stop calling me history professor if you're going to keep going that far back, Manny. That's a total side, you know. <laughs> you, you stole my hat, and then you now you're stealing my title. It's totally I, Googled, I Googled that information about three minutes before we got on, just so you know. <laughs> well, so we can go on, though. Um, you know, the Italian winemaking today is still very much influenced by by basically the, the, the banking families of, of Tuscany back in the, you know, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. Uh, you know, the most famous of which we know are the, are the Medici, 
which, you know, Machiavelli's uh, The Prince, um, you would have seen it there. You know, if anyone had to read that book in high school, that was about uh, the Medici's. Um, you know, they were they were they were bankers of the Pope. Um, you know, the wine I'm bringing today, I, I'm bringing a wine from the Frescobaldi family. Uh, Frescobaldi's, they were they were bankers back in the day. Uh, and, and these long lines of, of heritage um, that were vying for power when Italy was a bunch of little, little city states, not even regions, city states. You know, like we we talk about winemaking regions. Um, Florence and Siena are both within the region of Tuscany and even in, in Chianti. And they were fighting each other because they were separate states. I mean, it was so fractured at the time. Um, just craziness with all this stuff. And the fact that these families were able to survive and their winemaking tradition was able to survive to today. Uh, the Medici's actually, the, um, they're not making wine in Tuscany anymore. I believe they're making uh, Lambrusco. So, but, it, but, it, but it's still them. Um, the Frescobaldi's are still in Tuscany, but you have these, this long streak. Uh, and again, too, um, you know, how do they all get their power and their land and their influence? From their connections with the Pope, because it always comes back to the papacy to tie all the way back into our own discussion from, you know, whatever it was eight <laughs> weeks ago now. So it, it's so, when we say the history of wine and the history of the history of the world really link, they, they really do. It, it's, it's so interesting how they are tied together. It's been such a part of the fabric of society for so long. Um, and, you know, again, it, it's true in this case once more. Absolutely. And I mean, so there's a, a couple of really cool things that I was uh, um, researching the last, last couple of days or, you know, coming into Tuscany. Um, with the Medici's with, um, can I just call him Cosmo or Kramer instead of Cosimo? Cause that sounds, I'm just going to call him Kramer. So in 1716, Kramer, uh, <laughs> he, um, he basically, uh, it was actually in September, um, of 1716. He had made this kind of like edict basically where he mapped out four regions in, um, in Tuscany as, as key, wine regions. One of those was Chianti, um, and then another region called Pomino, which is northeast of Chianti. Um, uh, this one place called uh, Valdo Orno de Sopra, which is in the eastern part, which oddly enough only got their DOC status a handful of years ago, I think 2010, 2011, although it was labeled as a wine region um, centuries ago. And then the last one is Carmignano, and what's really cool about that specific area, and we'll talk about you know, grapes in a moment, um, but it was one of the first areas where you started seeing a lot of Cabernet in Tuscany. Um, and supposedly the story I heard years ago was that uh, Cosmo had Cabernet brought in from Bordeaux um, in the 17th century into this one area. And uh, they would blend it with, with Sangiovese, which is the main it's not just the main grape in Tuscany. Um, and there's there's like a hundred different varietals, indigenous varietals throughout Tuscany, but it definitely is probably one of the most prominent and important grapes, especially for red wine um, throughout central Italy. I think it is the most widely planted varietal in Italy, um, wow. which, is, which is pretty wild, you know. But already at that point, you know, we were talking about the AOCs a moment ago or the Rhone, which was one of the first areas where the AOCs came from. Although nothing was, Kind of legal binding like it is today with the DOCs, which are the version of AOCs in Italy or DOCGs, um, they were already forming a lot of these rules and regulations and you know what 
what is the terroir, what are different areas, and what grapes are we growing in these different areas, you know. And one cool thing with, with Tuscany, um, you know, I said Sangiovese is the key varietal, but if you're in different areas, you're using completely different grapes or different blends, you know, like where you are today in the Maremma, you know, they grow Sangiovese, it doesn't do well there. You know, it's, it's a complete different mindset in, in the wine that they produce. What are you drinking, by the way? So I am drinking, uh, so again, I'm drinking a Frescobaldi one. Uh, so the Frescobaldi's, you know, they've had like 700 and something years of contiguous uh, winemaking uh, with some really cool stories behind everything. This is their Marema property. Um, Amaralia is their Marema estate. And I'm drinking their Ali, uh, I believe it's Ali, uh, Rosé. Which you've already made fun of me for drinking rosé when we're talking about Tuscany, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a really cool wine. Um, uh, Ali is uh, pays reference to again going back to the Greeks, like we were last week, again another another tie-in, uh, a a sea nymph, uh, Halia, uh, who was you know who was in the sea, and they, they've named this you know this this gorgeous beautiful you know sea nymph. And they've named this this rosé uh, after her. So again, tying back to the the, the history and tradition. Um, and again, even the way it's made, uh, we're a blend of Syrah and Vermentino. So uh, the French varietals that aren't indigenous to the area, and the Italian varietal that is. So there's a there's a lot of cool, um, you know. Again, just in the one wine, the, you know, the, those all those connections that you were just talking about are embodied in in that wine. That's awesome. How is it? Uh, it's it's rosé, so it's delicious. Obviously, <laughs> for my towny moment, you know, it, it's it's almost as good as my uh, my Dunkin' Ice. So, which <laughs> so yeah, it's so interesting with the you know with these different varietals, you know, you know, Syrah, Vermentino, Vermentino. First of all, it's just such an awesome summertime grape. Um, it is the cornerstone. It's actually it's one of those grapes too. We're talking about indigenous varietals, they grow it in France where they call it roll. And it's actually, um, it's, you know, it's, you'll see it not, not in like Cotteron or, or it's not one of the white grapes in Chateauneuf, but you'll see it in the Languedoc in Provence. Um, and it just, to me, just smells like, like the ocean. Uh, but one reason why Sangiovese just doesn't do well here is the soils, which are mostly sandy. And um, you can make re real simple fruity, Sangiovese, but nothing that's that's too complex, you know. Um, even if you go further north, there's a real famous area called Volgari um, near Livorno, uh, where you get some real great um, cachuco, which is kind of like Fruit of the Mar or something like that. But um, this is actually the, the home or the birth of like the, the classic Super Tuscan, um, because, you know, 60, 70 years ago, somebody realized I want to make wine. I want to live here. Sangiovese does not make good wine here. What are the soils? Sand, this clay. There's that limestone base, but it's more of a, a maritime. It's right. Uh, so this specific area, Bulgari, um, it's right where the Tyrrhenian Sea meets the Mediterranean, um, but it's a little cooler and it's relatively humid there as well, which is similar to the Bordeaux region in France. And so they started planting Cabernet and Merlot there. Um, the most famous being, you know, Sasakaya, 
um, which I think is well one of the one of the greatest producers, one of the greatest wines based on Cabernet and Cabernet Franc in, in the world. Um, unfortunately, we don't we don't have that today. You know, but um, that they realize, all right, if we want to make good wine and we want to be in this area, we cannot produce great wine with Sangiovese. It's just going to be too simple, you know. And that that changed a lot within Italian history, Italian culture, um, or at least with winemaking. Um, and once again, you know, kind of going back to us saying earlier that people like things that are traditional, all the tradi traditionalists that I know will never, ever turn their nose at Sasakaya. It's just amazing. Well, you know, it's, <clears throat> I, I love this, I love this conversation because it, Italians are very territorial, right? I mean, so how many, how many different names for Sangiovese is there just in the northern section of Italy because the different regions don't want to, you know, um, uh, call each other by the same, uh, they, they don't want to have the same name. Um, it's so interesting. We might be having a guest show up here, Manny. Somebody, uh, someone just pulled in. I think they're wondering what the hell I'm doing over here. Um, <laughs> like the, what, what's so cool about this part is there's still, um, there's still, they're maximizing what they have. They're just using a different grape, right? So they're, they're, it's it's their. Hi, Ben. What's going on? Yeah, I am, but it's okay. You can come say hi. I'm recording with Manny right now. We're doing an educational session, so we're we're. It's okay. It's okay. Say What's hi, Ben. Up? How are you, man? How are you, sir? What are we educating about? Well, uh, uh, Tuscany. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. You know cool. why not? Who needs Chiro? Exactly. Who's Chiro? <laughs> um, <laughs> that was that was Ben Sweeney, everyone. Yeah, this is what happens when you record the podcast at the office. It's just kind of how it goes. Um, <laughs> what are you going to do? You see people that you know, but yeah, you know, like the why I think it it was okay, and why people accept the Super Tuscans for what they are and whatnot. It's it's showcasing what that region in Italy can do. So it might not be the indigenous grape to, you know, close to that area, but it's still showcasing, you know, that Italy can make these wonderful, gorgeous, complex wines. Uh, it just might not be the, the, wasn't the preferred grape a hundred years ago. And, and that's okay, because it's still showcasing Italy. And uh, Sasakaya is one of the most sought after wines in the world, not just Italian wines, just wines in the world, period. Yeah. Uh, they'll, they'll take that, and anyone will take that any day of the week. Uh, yeah, they're 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 fantastic, and what I think is you know um, so interesting, kind of going back in this this idea of like the traditionalist, you know, so you're drinking Frescobaldi. I think they're like the 13th century. The family dates back to um, maybe a little older. You know, Vercassole is another one from the 12th century, and like um, uh, uh, Ventino Vercassole back in the 1860s created the, the Chianti blend. Um, there's a lot of history with a lot of these estates, but there are a lot of producers that are new. Uh, you know, after the Second World War, um, that was finally one of the first times that people could start purchasing land and start developing wineries. Before that, it was kind of like Burgundy with, with um, the aristocracy and maybe three or four negociants like Champy or Bouchard, um, you know, before the French Revolution. And it wasn't until after the French Revolution when you had the, the common person getting 
land to produce Burgundy. Um, and after the Second World War, that's when people were able to actually start um, really modernizing Italian winemaking. And it, it left this idea of the aristocracy of the nobility producing wine or owning all the land and the sharecropper. Um, and the tractor was a huge thing. Once again, the idea of the horse um, tilled soil is incredible, but if you're a small farmer, that's a lot of work to do. <laughs> and having a tractor is gonna change the game. You know, and then like the 60s was a renaissance of winemaking and the Delicata family in Sasakaya was instrumental in producing clean, fresh, modern wines um, that still, to me, it still smells Tuscan, Sasakaya, um, but it is its own, its own identity, you know. And I think you see that throughout the region. I mean, the, the um, topography of, of Tuscany is unique because it's like 63% hilly, there's like 20% mountains, um, and there's only about 8%, I think, are plains. And that's where you see a lot of the Bordeaux-based varietals, you know, the things that are more like a valley. Um, Sangiovese is a grape, has a hard time ripening, it, even, and we'll talk specifically about Chianti later, but I'm drinking uh, Vino Nobile de Mapuciano. Um, it has a hard time ripening here by itself. And so they'll oftentimes blend a little bit of indigenous grapes, um, some Caniolo, some Colorino, some of the same grapes you see in Chianti, you know, um, and so, this is not Montpucciano de Bruzzo. Montpucciano de Bruzzo is a varietal. Well, Montpucciano is a varietal. Um, de Bruzzo means it's from Abruzzo, which is the region just kind of southeast on the other side of the Apennines from Tuscany. It's one of the 20 regions of Italy. Um, Montpucciano, in our terms here in Tuscany, is a village. And I, I heard a story at one point that Possibly the grape came from this village, um, but it's not grown there at all. Uh, I don't know how true that is. I mean, who knows? Um, the grapes definitely find their way around, you know, uh, they're promiscuous as Chiro would say. Um, but uh, so Vino Nobile means the noble wine um, of Montpucciano. So our wines here are always based on um, a good percentage of Sangiovese, uh, which is once again for some of the more serious wines internally in the, the um, center of, of Tuscany is the heart and stone of a lot of the, the wines here. In fact, actually, the name itself comes from Sagre de Jupiter or the blood of Jupiter or Jovis, uh, which later became Sangiovese. Uh, so we're a hilly area here. This is from Torcovano, which is owned by the Falinari estate. Um, and up until 2000, it was actually um, it was labeled as Ludula Nuova from Rufino because it was the same family. They kind of, as many times happens in Italy when family are involved in business, don't always get along, especially after drinking, working hard in the vineyard and drinking a lot of wine. Um, you know, tongues begin to wag and it's not always the best uh, relationship at that point. But uh, the uh, Fulinari side of the family got the vineyards, Rufino got the name. Um, and so this is a pretty old, actually old estate that dates back to the 14th century. Um, Torcovano is a newer, a newer brand, but you know, to me, this is such an awesome, gorgeous wine. Um, Florentine style steak all day long, you know, it's just, 
Yeah, it's peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> it's quarantine steak, peanut butter and jelly, same thing. You know, uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, you know, it's, I think I want to circle back quickly because you were talking about how in the 60s they had this huge kind of, you know, boon in winemaking for, for lots of reasons. Sometimes historically, uh, we forget how old the planet is and how old human history is and, and so on. Um, you know, feudal, true feudalism did not really end in Europe, if you count Russia, until 1917. Um, the, the French, you know, uh, got rid of feudalism in the late uh, 18th century when, when they had the revolution and so on. Um, and and started so that they had kind of a jump start. Uh, Italy hasn't really been a, a true, you know, or, or has only been, excuse me, a true unified country since the late 19th century. And then you you had this string, uh, well, not string, well, you had one in particular. Um, you, you had some bad leadership there too, uh, particularly during World War II. So, you know, they have all this tradition locally that allow them this really strong base from which to work which is great it, it, it's phenomenal but you know the oh well the, the, the renaissance you know the, the real boon came in the 60s that doesn't make sense we just we've been talking about the 13th 14th centuries well yeah but there were a lot of roadblocks and impediments to getting to where they are today and you know they the stumbling points were legitimate um and What's so amazing about the whole thing to me is that they were able to keep what made them unique in their individual areas through all that, you know, that, that nonsense. And, you know, I, I don't want to belittle World War II as nonsense and Mussolini's rule as nonsense. Um, but through that hard period and, and come out of it uh, a nude um, with, you know, with this, with this positive attitude and, and creating a better place. And... I, it says a lot for, for the Italian people and what they were doing and how they overcame all this. Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, if we're really talking, yeah, Italy's only been a unified country for, you know, 150-ish years. And I, I know I'm off there and Chera will, will, will make fun of me for it later. But, yeah. So, but I mean, even beyond that, if we take that period, you know, in, in the 30s and 40s, um, we're looking at the last... 80, so 70 to 80 years, they've really had the chance to, to thrive and overcome and, and create that new identity for themselves. And it's, it's just, it's special, it's unique. I think they should be commended for it because uh, it's, Europe went through a lot, man. Yeah. I mean, we have too, but Europe went through a lot. <laughs> uh, and, and we're so, and this isn't a bad thing necessarily, um, we're so uh, America focused on history and whatnot uh, that, you know, even, even when we're learning world history, uh, we, we don't always, you know, line up, you know, the 160 years ago, isn't that long ago <laughs> yeah. in the scheme of things. So it's, um, and th this is, this is modern history that we're talking about in which all these, th these things are happening. Exactly. You know, and I mean, there's, there is such a, rich sense of tradition within each region, within each village, within each home throughout Italy, um, you know, throughout Europe in general, that it took also a long time. And there was a lot of fighting for a younger generation of winemakers to kind of rebel against their parents and say, no, 
we're not just going to make bulk production because in a lot of these regions, they were blending with their red wines, white grapes. And the idea was to, to make wines easier, to make them uh, a little more straightforward and also to bulk up production. And it's like, no, that we don't want to just bulk up production. We want to make good, serious wine. Um, and, you know, the days, thankfully, the fiasco, the wicker basket, um, Chianti, although is fun and romantic, you know, those days are over and it's now serious winemaking. And it's like for producers like Tor uh, Torcovano, um, La Fuga in Montalcino, um, for Frescobaldi family, uh, I look at these wines as being old world modern. You know, if they still, like this um, Montepulciano, Vino Nobile de Montepulciano, that's really hard to say really fast. The Torcovano <laughs> um, smells like Tuscany. I mean, it is kind of, herbaceous, you get this dried hay thing to it. There's a barnyard funk to it. And then you get this like sour cherry thing that's so iconic within Sangiovese. Um, but the wine is clean. You still get nice tannic structure. You get beautiful acidity. You know, there's such, such amazing food wines, you know, and these wines were historic, um, not just, you know, the red wines, but, you know, some of the white wines like Vernaccia, I mean, um, were historic and legendary. Michelangelo used to paint Bernaccia, and I think he called it, like, it was like a kiss or um, a lick was what he would describe uh, because there was almost this tannic structure to the white. Um, uh, the, uh, the Dante Alighieri wrote about Vernaccia in, I know we're talking about red wines, but um, talked about Vernaccia in the uh, Divine Comedy. And there's such a rich history within a lot of these indigenous varietals, but there's, and maintaining that history, but I think there's enough wherewithal and enough um, forward thinking to realize that there's another wine world out there that's going to make their wines better. You know, because when we think of Italian fashion, it's like clean, it's sleek, it's beautiful. Italian cars are clean, sleek, beautiful, modern. Why does the food, why do the wines always have to be, you know, something that you would get in a farmhouse 200 years ago? Um, you know, we wouldn't like that, <laughs> those wines today. You know, even the even the traditionalists wouldn't like those wines today. I I thought, you know, you brought up Michelangelo, and I'm like, you know what? He's going to go all ro romance on us right now. And then he called it the lick, not so much. You know, Dante, sure, the Divine Comedy, talking about hell, not really a romantic. One's like a barnyard, you know. You, you, that that was just a total letdown. I'm not going to lie. I was all <laughs> you know to be to be romance there and and you know. And, <laughs> the complete opposite direction especially when i'm drinking rosé you know it's 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 i needed that right then manny and, and I, I just didn't get it so <laughs> <laughs> sorry um, I, kind of to your point though in general i think you know and we, we should probably save the the super tuscan the purest like the you know the sasakai is the ornali is and, and so on for a, a, a diff uh, again that's probably going to warrant its own podcast uh but i do think we should touch on it quick because that was the moment from in my opinion where the chianti stopped being the focus um and i mean even if you look at you know we're not we haven't even we haven't even touched on brunello yet manny what's wrong with us um, even if you look at the Renaissance in Brunello and when that started, that was right around the same time the Super Tuscan, you know, focus started because that was when, hey, look, we can make great wines that aren't labeled Chianti 
and these different areas, um, either from Sangiovese or from not, um, you know, the, the Brunello Renaissance really started to happen in the late 60s uh, when, you know, what, you know, how are we going to grow this? How should we, you know, where should we grow it? What's the best spots? Uh, obviously, they have to grow it in, in Montalcino. But, you know, what was the best land for it? How should we, you know, how, what type of oak should we use? How long should we macerate? All these things that, that Renaissance came. And it was at this, in all, in many ways, this, all these beautiful lines came to the forefront again, um, because Chianti was so married to tradition, they weren't making as good a wine as they could have. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so basically that, you know, the, um, well, really quickly, because we'll touch on this more another day. Um, there was a mandate from, uh, you know, from the government when you were making your your Chianti that you had to blend in some indigenous white grapes. There was a certain percentage and you had to do it um, for lots of reasons. One, it made a more quaffable wine. Two, though, those white grapes were easier to grow. So it, it was less work in the field. It was kind of, um, I don't want to say it was like economic stimulus, but it, 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 it was it was helping farmers, you know, cr create more product. Um, but the wines were just kind of meh. Um, and, and in response to that, everyone around said, you know what, I'm going to break these rules. I don't like these rules. I'm going to break them because I can make a better wine if I break these rules. And I actually think because of that, not only did we get better wines from Tuscany around, and we're talking Vino Nobile and Brunello and, you know, some of the some of the whites as well, um, and the super Tuscans on, on the coast, but Chianti got better result. I mean, th this kind of fight between tradition and modernity is what gave us this amazing wine region that we have today. Uh, I, you know, Tuscany is, the super Tuscans, I mean, they're as sought after as Napa Valley Cab in, 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 in you know, first growth Bordeaux in, in many senses. So, uh, I, there's so much to freaking talk about with Tuscany. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I just realized we didn't really talk about the soils. Um, you know, with Montalcino, it's what's so unique about it. It's, it's the one area that um, can grow consistently world-class Sangiovese as a, as a monovarietal, um, or at least it's easier because where they're located, the further south, it's higher up on the hills. Um, you know, the, the soils are warmer soils. Uh, they're actually pretty fertile because there's a, an extinct volcano just to the south called um, Amiata that um, makes it easier to grow grapes here. And um, actually, I had, had a Brunello last night from Frescobaldi, the, the uh, Casa Giaconda, uh, for an event I did. Um, it, was, it was pretty darn good. Um, and once again, still maintaining the sense of Tuscan of Tuscany. It's I can smell if it's a, a I can smell most Tuscan wines and know it's it's from Tuscany if it's a good producer. It doesn't have to be expensive, but a good producer because there's just this beautiful sense, you know, of terroir in the wines. Um, yeah, I mean it's such a varied area, you know, and um, and 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 oftentimes very, I think very tongue in cheek. History. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, Sasakaya a moment ago. So Mario della Rochetta, who is the creator of Sasakaya, actually came from, from the north, from Piemonte. And if you fly over his estate um, in a, you know, a helicopter or a plane or a hang glider, however you want to do it, um, 
you'll see, if you look at the bottle of Sasakaya, it looks, there's like a family symbol and it looks kind of like a, it reminds me of a really cool compass you'd see in an old map, but on the, uh, the top of this little compass shape, it, it is much larger. And the way they have it positioned in, um, in the winery, if you're flying over, is that it's pointing north to Piemonte because they're still, although they're uh, in Tuscany, they make one of the most amazing Tuscan wines in the world, um, there's still kind of this, uh, uh, not grass is greener, but hey, this is, we're from Piemonte and we actually make really great wines here, or um, uh, this is our ancestry, so hey, a faculo, <laughs> yeah, to everybody else. <laughs> Because they're, you know, we think of Italy as one generic country, but even within Tuscany um, or within Campania, you know, within Sicily, there's all these little provinces and, and regions and folklore. And you're saying all the Sangiovese has different names in different areas. Like I think in Vino Nobile, they call it Prunello Gentile, gentle plum. Um, you know, Brunello is basically it's the the affectionate term they use for Sangiovese it's the little brown one is what they call it you know and um and they're all different clones which is which is also incredible which is another conversation later you know there's a there's a million conversation with this and you know I, we haven't really touched on this even when we did France or, or Italy I think we should um so when we say um I think I said this before, when Manny and I say old world, for those of you who, who aren't as, um, you know, who are more learning about wine, old world is Europe and new world is pretty much everything else. Um, so in, in the old world, particularly France, Italy and, and Spain, if you want to make a wine and label it regionally, you don't only have to get the grapes from a certain region and have, uh, you know, follow the strict rules of that AOC or DOC, DOCG, where, you know, uh, how, how densely planted your vineyard is, which means how many vines you can have, you know, throughout, um, how much fruit you can harvest off those vines, your minimum alcohol levels, the, you know, the time and oak, all, all these things, you, for the most part, too, also need to have your winery in that specific region to, to make the wine. So, you know, if you're if you own a winery in, in the Veneto and you want to make Chianti, you're out of luck. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, if you want to make, uh, you know, white Burgundy and you're getting your grapes from Burgundy, but your winery is, you know, in Champagne or in the Rhone, you're kind of out of luck. You need to be where, where you are. Uh, and that's a, that is an issue that the new world doesn't really have. As long as you're getting your grapes from you know the right place and you're you're following the more basic rules that are there it's a lot more lenient so the the what they're doing especially in, in, in you know tuscany it's really hard like you know if you're um like the frescobaldi's they have they have a, uh, an amoralia estate they have a nipozzano estate they have uh, i'm gonna uh the castel giocondo estate they have a state in Pomino. They, they have all these different areas. One, they've been around for 700 and something years. But two, because they need to. Um, if you want to make all these different wines and diversify what it is that you do, you need to have this expansive area. And, and it also, uh, it makes things a lot more difficult uh, and to, to kind of express yourself. And I think, again, 
we should be commending some of these producers, one, for branching out and trying different things and taking that risk, that added cost of having that localized estate, um, but also recognizing that having it that way harkens back to that tradition. It keeps that tradition. So you're marrying the old and the new and having that, um, you're still being in essence what that region wants to be while also expressing yourself and what you can do now in the modern day. Uh, it's, again, it, I mean, they're gorgeous. I mean, I, I've drank half this freaking bottle of rosé in what, in the half hour we've been talking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that, um, I think that could be a, a good, a good point to, to end on. Um, where should we go to next? Much, so you want to end? Is that what you're saying? Huh? <laughs> I, I'm implying that I've drank too much, so we should end. I mean, that's probably fair. <laughs> um, where, do, where do you think we should we should uh, run it to next? Well, I mean, you, I think you just gave us a transition before I, I, I threw that conjecture in there. Um, you know, if, if one of the most important growing, you know, growers in, in Tuscany uh, oh. is from Piedmont, I think we should hop over to Piedmont. Uh, but I kind of like the idea of staying on the off the beaten path. People think Piedmont, we're going to do Barbera, we're going to do Barolo. I think we should do Piedmont Whites. I think that's a good idea. Um, mostly because, like, today I, I, I want to drink them. So <laughs> It'll be hot. It'll be hot in a couple weeks. So Absolutely. I, uh, I call Favorita. Really? Yeah. I guess I'll fine. set up. Fine. Have it, have it, have it. I'll have our nice. It's fine. Uh, ooh. Well, oh, my. Yeah, I wasn't. We do have one, don't we? Mm-hmm. You know, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I it, if you're going to do one of those, I'm going to have to do Gabi just because we're going to have to have one of those. But um, I'll have to settle for Gabi. You know, sue me. I mean, it's just uh, I'm going to have to drink a gorgeous white wine that just more people know about as opposed to the one that people don't know about. Just <laughs> <laughs> tough, tough, tough world. Tragedy comes so young. <laughs> right. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think we're going to kick out, uh, kick us out with some music. Um, once again, everyone, thanks for joining us at Bottom of the Bottle. Um, check us out on Instagram, Bottom of the Bottle 750, um, wherever you stream your podcast. Are you ready for some more Ariana Grande? I am always. All right. Ariana Grande. I was so happy when I found this song. Oh, I, this is awesome. So, a uh, uh, thing with me, I, I love uh, uh, instrumental, either guitar or classical covers of pop music. Like, love. Absolutely. No idea why, uh, but I do. Like, there's a string quartet version of this song that I think is awesome. Uh, <laughs> you would have loved my grandmother. Um, I uh, I was trying to find music like where it's like the orchestra. 